0: Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always... Hold fast and enjoy the show. All right, I would like to uh, take the time now, if I may, John, to make an announcement. Uh, now is going to be the time for our first ever Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades Listener Giveaway. Um, and this one comes with a bit of a challenge for the listener. I, and the challenge is, well, first off, the prize, Are
1: you, are you giving away my dog because he bit you in the testicles yesterday? Uh,
0: okay, you're blowing the lead here. <laughs> I am, I will give away to a listener any of our research books of their choice from my library. You get in touch with us on our email address, which is Chris...
1: trrpod at gmail.com.
0: trrpod at gmail.com. If... You can give us the exact, from the previous episode, Justinian part one, the exact timestamp of when Vinny bit me on the junk.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's your your homework.
0: And I'm not talking, I should specify, I'm not talking the timestamp where in the episode I mentioned being bit on the junk by Vinny. I'm talking the moment when it happens. Because I know you can hear it in my voice. We want to see how closely you're listening to the episode. So, if you email... So, everybody who emails in to trrpod at gmail.com, the listener who comes closest to the accurate timestamp for the moment I get bitten on the nards by this freaking dog, you let me know.
1: It's, it's going to be tricky. Yeah. Like To be honest, it was almost totally soundless. One, the dog is a masterful assassin. Yes. Like, you don't know it's coming. <laughs> and two, like, you held it together pretty well
0: it was, it was a all things of a, considered yeah.
1: it was more of like a visual thing
0: yeah that's fair well that's why it's a challenge and that's why um, if they guess it right they're they're getting a prize and it's yeah. a prize they get to choose they get to choose any source book from any episode we've done for me to send to them to add to their personal that's, a,
1: that's more homework you can google which one was the most expensive or the one that Rob uses the most on the, and you'll think it'll use on future episodes just to really inconvenience Rob
0: in the event of a tie,
1: okay. Right. Right. Okay. just just blankly staring. He looked at me and then like gazed at the wall. I,
0: I host a podcast with <laughs> you three fuckers. The entire the entire raison d'être I have on this show is being inconvenienced.
2: <laughs> I was just gonna say, in the event of a tie, you will get a handmade Merkin-style bookmark from me, made
0: out of Chris's beard.
1: <sighs> I'm not shaving my beard.
2: I'm not gonna tell you where I'm gonna get my material. <laughs> <laughs> oh god.
0: I
1: think Vinny just puked. <laughs> <laughs> the dog's just like putting all his belongings into a into a like a, a handkerchief and nodding them over a stick. I am not
0: I am not the hero that Westmoreland County needs, but I am the hero it deserves. I am the night shaver. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. I'm Rob North.
1: I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graper, and I
0: am your padre, Michael Ernett. And we are getting into uh, part two of a uh, big, big series. And uh, we hope you enjoyed the first part. Uh, we definitely recommend you go listen to the first episode uh, because that's how it tends to work. But we don't want to. I mean, we we don't want to make you do anything you don't want to do. But listening to the first one in this will, will be pretty helpful. A lot of context. Um, so we, uh, we are, of course, uh, in the first episode. We told the story of how, in the early 6th century, Flavius Petrus Sabatius Justinianus, better known to history as Justinian, used his family connections to go from the sheepfolds of the Balkans to the halls of power in the gem of the Western world, Constantinople. At a time when the old Roman Empire had disintegrated in the West, but in the East, the Byzantine Empire had survived amid a sea of adversaries in the form of settled barbarian tribes and rival empires. Thanks to his ambition, smarts, and a healthy dose of nepotism, he climbed the ranks of the imperial court and, after ending up as chief advisor to his uncle, the Emperor Justin, soon took the throne himself. Justinian set about implementing programs of legal and religious reform, getting himself into a scandalous marriage, bringing down the hammer on rebellious subjects, and getting to work reconquering the lands of the Old Western Empire, all while sitting on a treasury filled to bursting with gold and silver, Justinian looks set to bring about a golden age for a new, reunited Roman Empire. Today, however, we're going to explore how all of that went terribly, terribly wrong. How a pair of disasters on a global scale would impact both the Byzantine Empire and Justinian personally, and how Justinian's actions didn't exactly do much to help. Today, we're going to see how disaster brings out both the worst in us and the greatest aspects of our resiliency. And how the greatness of an empire can be both its strongest defense and its greatest weakness. As always, we encourage you to listen to the first part. And it tells you a lot more about both the man Justinian himself, the empire he led, and the wider world of which it was a part.
1: It also says part one. And This one That's says true. part two. Like, come on now. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: it's you not happy. like we're
1: it's not like we're starting Star Wars with four for some reason.
0: Uh yeah. <laughs> I, dude. If anything, life in this world in the last like ten years has taught me you, you gotta reinforce it.
1: You can't make anything idiot-proof. Yeah, that's true. My chainsaw. I was, I was running my chainsaw the other day, and I noticed that right on the bar, it's a warning: to mm-hmm. not attempt to stop the chainsaw with your hands. It's a chainsaw.
0: You understand it, and that's why. <laughs> and that's it's, why your nickname isn't Stumps Miller.
1: It's a chainsaw.
0: Um. So, just a warning for everyone, this episode is going to contain some pretty graphic, and frankly, at times, a little bit gross uh, descriptions of the effects of the events we're going to cover today. So, I would avoid playing this one out loud at work, uh, or around anyone who may be kind of sensitive to these sorts of things. I want to be clear, we're not doing this to be gratuitous, to be edgy, whatever. We're including this material because it's highly relevant to the story, and we really do need it to paint an accurate picture of the conditions during these goings-on and to better reflect on the human experience of these events. This one could get a little bit heavy.
3: Thankfully, it's completely unrelatable to our lives today.
0: Oh, yeah.
2: I absolutely love your trigger warning, especially considering to the people that listen to this show have already gotten us through bestiality and cannibalism. Mm-hmm.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, here's the thing. is next to our finale of, of our series on Heaven's Gate... Uh, this episode might be the one where I've had to do the most emotional heavy lifting during the research process.
1: There was there's an, an awful lot to unpack with this, and you you have to understand that while this kind of mirrored a lot of other plagues, and in fact it was the same as one that had happened later in history that I'm sure we'll be we'll be covering, is that like modern medicine still struggles with some of the same shit? Yeah, like, it's. It, it, it's, it's deeply, deeply disturbing. And you do really get an appreciation yeah. for just how bad shit can get all of a sudden. Yeah. And, and it, it gives you a, an incredible appreciation for people that do this for a living. Like yeah. people who okay. are, are literally combating something that is invisible.
0: People like my sister. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, yeah, it's, um, yeah I, I, I'm like, I've been dealing with some pretty heavy emotional stuff in my regular life alongside this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, frankly, I had a couple points in researching this stuff where i was in a pretty dark place i mean there were a couple of am uh, here's the thing i like i'm I'm fine i'm safe but man there were points where this got dark there were a couple of occasions where i had nightmares about today's subject matter yeah there's probably a whole new level
1: there, there's not going to be nearly as much happy-go-lucky banter in this one i imagine i we're I've all tried, fairly weary of this i've <laughs> this tried to work point.
0: in some lighter stuff some more entertaining moments but yeah this one's going to be a long road to hoe it's going to be a slog
1: yeah there's 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 emotional. a lot of oh shit moments yeah. uh, in the next like 90 minutes. You so, know,
3: you just keep saying
1: shit and it's, I mean, it's on
3: oh, point. this <laughs> is a,
0: Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. This is going to be a very shit heavy episode. This Truly. Is
1: a, this is for all of our German listeners. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's <laughs> the old, scatological. The old, the, old, the old Dresden special. Um, so before we proceed with what is going to be the heavy episode, uh, we want to acknowledge our sources as we always do. We have uh, Justinian the Great, The Life and Legacy of the Byzantine's Greatest Emperor by Charles Rivers. Uh, Lost to the West The Forgotten Byzantine Empire That Rescued Western Civilization By Lars Brownworth The Glittering Horn Memoirs from the Court of Justinian By Pearson Dixon Bunch of random noise In the background From fucking Vinny
1: Well the dog got a new toy He's just yeah. very excited about it We'll uh, fix it in post th- He's, I mean it's what we did with Jack We just put him in Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we could fix it in post But it's a dog People on the internet Like that shit
0: The The piece of source material That I think plays The greatest role In this episode A fantastic book Called Justinian's Flea by William Rosen, and it it really does focus on the events we're talking about today, but it does manage to tie it in with every every kind of context you can think of about the Byzantine Empire at the time. There's also um, the Secret History by Procopius, the Chronicle, yeah, the Chronicle by John Malalas, and the Ecclesiastical History by Evagrius Scholasticus. These three are contemporary sources or very close to it. So we're going to pull from these very heavily with quotes. And um, we want to include these sources because these are written by people who were in the room with Justinian at some point. They may not be the most flattering sources towards Justinian, but they are contemporary. So, uh...
3: I'd actually actually like to call out... It focuses on the the later uh, Black Death, but the last podcast on the left did an exceptional five-part series on the Black Death that does a wonderful job of visualizing Mm -hmm. how much this sucks over the span of, like, eight hours. And it's exceptional, and I recommend it highly.
0: Actually, it was their series that kind of put the spark in my head of maybe we should cover Justinian. And uh, you'll find out why. And the fact that the plague just popped back up in Southeast Asia, like, three weeks ago. Yes. And (laughs) the American West. uh, Yeah. Yeah, four cougars died earlier this year in Utah. It should have been Lake Tahoe. Yeah, it it, it, it does. Where,
2: were they fucking
1: Cabana boys?
0: <laughs> the the not that kind of cougar. Not that oh, kind of cougar. Sorry. Oh, the sorry, cosmopolitans sorry. that will go undrunk. Yeah, not
1: a uh, not like a, a blonde woman yeah. that only has like stuff in her kitchen that says wine on it in Utah. Okay. In Utah, there live, goes, laugh, love.
0: Shit, there goes most of the talent for my new Mormon housewives web series. Anyway, uh, so guys, any more points for the good of the order? Don't we,
3: eat
1: during this.
0: Are we, uh, So we're ready to hear yeah. about Justinian and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad decade? Let her rip, man. Let's, yeah, let's, we're just going to pull the band
3: Let's get this Brace done. Brace yourselves,
0: people. Let's begin.
3: We should have poured shots.
0: <laughs> when we last left off in our story in the 530s, Justinian had moved on from securing his domestic policy in the Byzantine Empire through both force and reform, to working on his foreign policy, which was also unsurprisingly aggressive. Using the literal mountains of cash he had on hand to recruit and supply multiple large, well-trained, and well-equipped armies, Justinian had launched a series of attacks on the old territories of the Western Empire, now under the rule of tribes like the Vandals and the Ostrogoths, and had in rapid succession retaken most of North Africa, the Northern Balkans, Sicily, and a good part of mainland Italy. His forces had even managed to capture the old capital, the ancient heart of the Empire, Rome herself. But... Starting in late 535 A.D., something happened. Something big. Something worldwide. Something so unbelievably catastrophic that the only explanation most could come up with was that it was the heralding of the very end of the world itself. In the Byzantine Empire, the first indicators that something was awry would have been slight, and would likely have been felt rather than seen or heard. A low, throbbing vibration at such a low frequency that it wouldn't be heard but rather felt in the chest and in the inner ear, perhaps the sinuses. It spooked livestock and caused flocks of birds to take to the air for no apparent reason. Perhaps there was a small temporary shift in the direction of the breeze. Though this would have been unusual, there seemed to be no other immediate effects. But within a couple weeks, the sky would have begun to get hazy, and the warmth of the sunlight reduced. Soon, it was like the sun almost wasn't there. The rays were weak and bluish in color, and even when the sun was out, people couldn't see their shadows on the ground. Procopius wrote that, quote, the sun gave forth its light without brightness, and it seemed as though the sun were perpetually in eclipse. Syrian Bishop John of Ephesus wrote of, quote, the sun only giving its light for an hour each day, end quote. The chronicler Cassiodorus wrote of, quote, spring without mildness and summer without heat. As winter set in, the trees and grasses seemed to brown up and wither more quickly than usual, and the temperatures would have become noticeably chillier. Winter was a rainy time in many parts of the Empire, but in this first winter, almost nothing came down from the sky, leaving the land parched and dry. The forests kept going, or sorry, the frosts, kept going far later than usual. And when the seeds were planted into the dry ground the following spring, then the rains began, and they didn't stop. For days on end, endless, torrential, chilling downpours came down from the sky, beating flat and washing away what young crop shoots had managed to poke up from the ground, causing massive flash flooding and washing away whole riverside villages and farmsteads. Fish bobbed dead to the surface of ponds, lakes, and rivers, their systems overwhelmed by changes in water temperature. Massive banks of oysters, scallops, and mussels rotted on the shores, leaving a stench able to be caught from miles away
3: oh god I can just spell that in my nostrils right now
0: and the
1: the, the one thing about this is you know we talk about crops and, and all these things that, like all these barren fields it's not quite the same as today where everything's mechanical and it's just a handful of people doing all this this is the work of entire communities that are even on a smaller scale I, mean, I just saw a farm the other day I don't know why I have this weird buck up my ass or I want to buy a farm I think it's because Jeremy Clarkson did hmm. but uh like that's a relatively small farm, and it's like eleven thousand acres. That's a small farm. That's eleven thousand acres. Yeah, we're talking about an entire community of people planning maybe one hundred and fifty acres, maybe. If that, and it and it takes so much
0: more time. If that, so like no. this
1: is so. There is so much work here,
0: and the scale is so much more important. Small level surplus agriculture, and it's this exactly. is ni- and it's ninety percent of the population devoted to it. Yes, well, so they're
3: gonna pick it up. They're gonna pick up any change instantaneously.
0: Yeah, as soon I mean, it as things
3: is. aren't what they should be, everyone's aware.
0: Of yeah, them. it's not going to take long for this population to go, something is really not right. Mm-hmm.
1: And these are people that are already not tremendously well-fed.
0: No. So livestock soon began to waste away, their grazing areas going from parched and brown to a morass of mud. The most terrifying thing about the rains? In some places it came down gray and sticky. The drop's heavy and painful on impact with the skin. In well, others, when, you,
2: when, you, when you're talking about the livestock, I, I remember when I uh, worked in West Texas. One of the things that's interesting is they see, you, you see these a small ranch out there. Yeah, is thirty or forty thousand acres, and they probably only have thousand head of cattle on that because it takes in when, when you when you start dealing with drought conditions. Yeah. It takes 40 acres of land to properly feed one beef gap, one, yeah. one, one beef head. So, I mean, again, we're back to, you know, this is, this is stuff they would know immediately. Yeah.
0: In other places, the rain came down black as charcoal, staining everything around it. And in still other places, the rain was said to fall reddish brown, the color of congealed blood.
3: Yeah, it's metal as hell, though. I mean, it is super amen.
0: cool. Yeah. Just so we're clear. Uh, there, there's going to it's be... like if
1: Tim Burton made
0: rain. Yeah. There's there's going to be a lot of points in this episode. <laughs> so it where it looks be... like
3: Johnny Depp. And <laughs> it,
2: instead it of just bad movies, it has weird hair.
0: There's a lot of imagery in this episode that's going to be um, reminiscent of like a Watain album cover. Yeah. Something <laughs> like that. Yeah. It's, it's very... Please, Kyle, Kyle <laughs> please
1: hold your pig's wheels until the end of the episode. Thank you.
0: So gunk began to gather in people's eyes, noses, ears, and mouths, a slurry of fine grit. Many began to suffer from respiratory diseases. Terrifying windstorms would blow up, collapsing barns and mills, and massive lightning storms would strike as well, setting fire to thatched roofs in both the cities and the countryside, electrocuting army soldiers camped in the open by the dozens attracted by their steel spearheads and helmets. Jesus Christ. The Chronicler... Cassiodorus wrote in Italy of, quote, spring without mildness, summer without heat. The sun had gone away. Can you imagine that? It would be absolutely horrifying. It's horrifying today. Yeah. Like whenever we had, when was the eclipse? Uh, 16, 17? 17. You mean the one that the American president stared directly at? Oh, yeah. That one? Okay. Yeah, that one. Moving on. The only one the only that, one that, that, only was, one that, that existed one.
2: because it went over the United States and Correct. Know, even
1: though it happens four times a year across the <laughs> <Yeah>. world. <and laughs> but whenever the sun in here, like we weren't really that close to the corona of this thing. Yeah. And it, and it just kind of dimmed. Even the birds stopped. There weren't any bugs. There weren't any birds. For like ninety seconds, it was completely
0: noiseless. I don't know where you were when that happened. I was right. I was on my front porch. Did you hear a bunch of dogs in the neighborhood start barking? Uh, I heard all the dogs stop barking. Mm.
1: And
2: there was but there no, was there was nothing, and there was no wind.
0: It, At and least we where knew, we were, and we knew this shit was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine not well, knowing? We know not, why, no we know yeah. why it, it happens, which is the uh, big thing. And, and it was spooky, and it was for a couple hours. Imagine that. Imagine that sort of like light condition. It's not an eclipse. There's nothing in front of the sun, right? But just imagine that sort of like like tepid light. Well, that week that almost total occlusion febrile light for months on end
1: think about an
3: LA morning in you the know 70s. in the 70s but there's or no a, industry or a there's no morning or a in Pittsburgh. the 80s. yeah well yeah. without the industry and without the context and it just doesn't go away and it's every fucking day
1: yeah all it's, day it's snowing in the summer yeah right it's snowing yeah. in the summer
0: it's and it's po- snowing ash yeah. And it's apocalyptic imagery. And among all this apocalyptic imagery, one thing is clear: <laughs> the crops had failed; the harvest almost non-existent. Well, but in the Empire, things had been prosperous, and there had been several years in a row of bountiful harvests. So there was a good food surplus, even enough to make it through to next year, uh, and through until next year's harvest could be gathered. Except all over the Empire, grain stores had been destroyed, flooded out, burned; the grain gone or spoiled. Many of the larger granaries were full, but if you were a part of the workaday population, oh, that wasn't for you to eat. That was for the armies over in Persia or Italy or North Africa, and we can't deprive our fighting boys overseas. Soon, the hunger began to set in with a vengeance. It wasn't so bad in the cities at first, especially major hubs like Constantinople and Alexandria, as their massive trade networks continued to bring in some foodstuffs. In the countryside where those sorts of stocks and trading weren't present, Things got bad quickly. Those who tried to hunt and fish for survival found no game and nothing biting. What food there was to be gathered often went unharvested as the farmers were soon soon too weak from hunger to bring it in. Soon the shipments to the cities dried up as well. Prices rose fast as granaries quickly emptied. Starvation setting in led to desperation, and desperation breeds violence. Murders, assaults, and thefts all sharply rose riots demanding bread caused chaos and destruction wherever they frequently broke out and draconian responses left blood flowing in the streets strange displays of mania often religious but sometimes masked dancing or people running around pretending to be animals broke out as people began to consume spoiled grain covered in the mold known as ergot which contains the same base chemical contained in lsd often bad trip yeah bad trip and that also, it, you know, it kills you.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, because
3: that's the one that like <laughs>
1: consumed enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. Doesn't it like yeah.
3: turn limbs black or something crazy like that? It, it
0: does. It, lead it, to it necrosis, affects the pulmonary yeah. system. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah.
1: It basically turns off all your veins, and then parts just start falling off of you. Fast. That's forward. not even the gross part of the episode.
2: Not even. Well, fast forward twelve hundred <laughs> years. ergot is one of the things that they believe may have uh, led to Salem, Massachusetts, and the witch trials.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, also, look up the. Um, there was a... I forget the name of it. There was a city in Germany where tens of thousands of people fell victim to this. And they rebelled, and it led to a siege. Uh, its I'll, I'll try to look it up later, but it's an insane story. Was
1: that one on grain? I know that, sir. Wasn't it like on the potatoes or something? Uh, no,
0: this one would have been on grain because they weren't growing potatoes in that part
1: okay. of the world. Yeah, I point. remember. It was definitely food stores, but I thought, mm-hmm. I thought it was something different.
0: Uh, I, I know Dan Carlin covered it.
1: Dan Carlin covers everything. That's well, That's true. It's like The Simpsons. <laughs> Simpsons Carlin, did did it.
0: It. Yeah. Carlin did it. Carlin did it. So soon, people were starving to death in their hundreds, then their thousands. In some households, parents smothered their children in order to reduce the number of mouths to feed. Among the religious community, the doomsday preaching reached a fever pitch. Hardliners preached about how it was all Justinian's fault, wanting to meddle in church business and making laws that do things like allowing women to exist and making God mad as a result, and now everyone was being punished. Religious groups began attacking each other, killing in significant numbers members of other sects who clearly brought about this whole thing because of their slightly different interpretation of the nature of Christ's divinity. It's in this time that we see the first real organized pogroms against the Empire's Jewish population as well, a disturbing trend that would continue throughout medieval Christendom any time there was a major disaster. Though the strange weather conditions continued, the worst of it abated for a short time, and the harvest of 537 actually did manage to happen although it was estimated to have produced less than a quarter of its usual yield. And what it did produce contained far less nutritional value due to the anemic growing environment. It soon became clear that the priority for Justinian's government in this weak harvest was not to make sure that the people who actually grew the food and made the things and paid the taxes got what they needed to survive. Nor was he inclined to cut them a break on their portion of the harvest given over to the government. As a matter of fact, with the help of John of Cappadocia, his finance minister, Justinian commissioned an empire-wide survey to make doubly sure what everyone owed to him based on how much land they had, taking up valuable energy and resources that easily could have gone into relief efforts.
3: But he called them all heroes and we banged our pots together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He had an army to feed, and that was absolutely his priority. And if you couldn't pony up what you owed, the Crown instituted more draconian measures as retribution. Punishments could include public floggings, brandings, the amputation of fingers, whole hands your ears your noses they could blind you or for repeat offenders capital punishment was in order the imperial tax collectors became boogeyman figures among the population and people fleeing from for their lives from the long arm of the state sowed even more chaos among the population
1: and now now we all know that the tax man is like a warm and fuzzy he's your pal we love him (laughs) we love giving him more money at the end of the year I was just thinking, is this a is this where we
2: got the precedent for uh, gerrymandering districts during an apocalypse, like kind of
0: like twenty twenty? Yeah, I, it may be. Mm-hmm. Well, so here's the here's the interesting thing about the about this survey. It totally changed from a proportional tax system to its tax system based on potential, because it wasn't like okay, you owe ten percent of whatever you harvest to the crown. It is you have this many acres that at full yield can bring you this many bushels of grain. Therefore, every year you are going to owe this many bushels of grain to the crown, no matter how much you actually grow. So it becomes an impossible level to meet in a time like this.
1: It really says something about Justinian that this is the time that he picked to start really hammering people with taxes. Mm-hmm. And he continues doing this. Yeah. But for for a guy that the Kind of got to where he was by being such a great delegator. Boy, when he's left to his own devices, man, like you it's can, a shift. You can definitely tell that that the one the one thing that I saw some historians had kind of uh, kind of glossed over or just didn't necessarily agree with was, I mean, there was a lot of nepotism, but he was basically it's a Luke Skywalker thing. You take a kid that's living on a farm and you show him the Death Star. In the same day, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like it's it's one wacky adventure for him. But could you imagine? Like he never really left his town. He but I mean, he was educated. He's not an idiot by any sense. Like I mean, he spoke what three languages by the time he made it to Constantinople. Oh yeah, but he saw Constantinople, Constantinople, and it became abundantly clear that it was probably going to be his. Yeah, like, it really wouldn't take that much for this. To oh, be he was his. on the fast track. He mm-hmm. went from a farm. To Constantinople, he saw it, he was like, holy
0: shit, in like five years, this is all going to be mine. He well, was right. You know what they say about power and how absolute power relates to it. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, and so in his head, he is months of campaign away from restoring the Roman Empire.
1: It, we did kind of pass through that one. Like,
0: this this is what well, No, we're going to get yeah. to it. We're going to get to it. Yeah. We'll, so, right... Well,
2: in, the, 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 the one thing I was going to add is when you were talking about the potential taxation. The taxation of p- t- potential in the United States right now we kind of have that not with the government but with the speculation of commodities. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's it's the same kind of thing. It's the same policy. You're you're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So right in time for Justinian's proto-doomsday book to be finished, however, the Empire got smacked with another year of terrible weather and the harvest of 538 was non-existent. Another year went by and another harvest time came and went with nothing to show for it. And by 539... The people dying in their thousands from hunger and malnutrition had turned to people dying in their millions. Even sitting on his massive cash reserves, Justinian had had refused to turn loose anything to help his population, focusing his entire efforts on his military conquests. Things weren't just bad in the empire, however. Contemporary sources from across the world corroborate what was happening in Byzantium with similar imagery. Monastic chronicles in Ireland note that there were, quote, four years of the failure of bread and both irish and frankish monastic sources note that the sun was cast from the sky by the hand of god it was noted that in ireland and england snow fell in july persian chroniclers noted quote the sun wrapped in cloth and the preponderance of a dense dry fog that would stay for weeks at a time sources in china spoke of crop failures and unseasonable snow and sources from the court of the Emperor Senkai in Japan spoke of how the sun disappeared for his entire four-year reign. Stonework and woodcuts from non-literary cultures such as the Moche of Peru, the late Maya in Mexico, and the Serer people of West Africa all exhibit symbols indicative of famine and strange, unheard-of weather. With these strange events and the scarcity of food worldwide came conflict. War broke out between the rival dynasties ruling China, civil war happened among the Moche, Violent territorial disputes broke out among the Franks in Gaul, the Visigoths in Spain, and the Saxons in Britain. And uh, they believe that these, these wars in Britain that broke out would lead to the Arthur mythos, actually. Massive migrations of nomadic groups, evocative of the movements of people that laid low the Western Empire, set off conflicts throughout the Eurasian continental mass. Throughout the world, in addition to the military conquests all going on, There was now a period of unequal violence to underscore the massive traumas of widespread famine. Whole cities were depopulated and disappeared from the archaeological record, and towns and villages vanished off the map in their thousands, their inhabitants having died or fled. On the Foster Human Calamity Magnitude Scale, which uses quantifiable estimates of death, physical damage, and human physical and emotional suffering to create a list of the worst events ever suffered in human history, This period of famine, war, and unease is topped only by a pair of world wars and the worst disease outbreak to ever strike humanity in the form of the Black Death, and sits in fourth place all time, right out in front of event number five, which is the next thing we'll talk about in our story. It's estimated worldwide that between all of the famine, droughts, flooding, other disasters, and the ensuing violence, between about 536 and 540 AD, as many as 100 million people out of a world population of roughly 750 million may have perished as a direct result. Within the Byzantine lands, which encompassed about 50 million people, it's estimated that 6 to 7 million would have died. The famine would have also had other would also have other knock-on effects that would leave the population vulnerable. But we'll talk about that in a bit. So what was the source of these events? It's long been hypothesized that some sort of massive explosion or impact was the cause, perhaps a supervolcano or the impact of a comet or large meteorite. In the last couple of decades, though, thanks to modern science, we've come upon a likely culprit. Or should I say culprits? The study of geological deposits, core samples from ice sheets and glaciers, tree ring studies and satellite mapping have revealed a series of as many as five major volcanic eruptions within the span of only a few years. The first likely occurred at Ilopongo in what's now El Salvador, where a massive blast expelled the equivalent of 15 cubic miles of earth, ash, and dust into the atmosphere, creating what's now a 28-mile-wide caldera lake. This eruption blanketed the area in ash and hot-flowing earth and gases, the pyroclastic flow, destroyed nearby Mayan cities, and led to the abandonment of Teotihuacan, the largest city in the pre-Columbian Americas at the time. The second culprit appears to have been at Rabaul, in the New Britain Islands off of Papua New Guinea. This was of a similar power to the first eruption and left a crater so large, it became one of the prime anchorages for the Japanese fleet in World War II. The third major contributor was none other than Krakatoa, Mm -hmm. which sits between Java and Sumatra in the Indonesian islands. Krakatoa is of course famous for a massively explosive eruption in 1883 that killed some 30,000 people with choking ash and tsunamis and was audibly heard over a thousand miles away in Perth, Australia and sent sound waves from its eruption around the world seven times before they dissipated. You remember my referencing those subsonic rumbles that people would have felt rather than heard? That's what people experienced when Krakatoa blew. There's also geological evidence for large eruptions in Iceland and the Aleutian Islands off of Alaska that... While they were of a significantly smaller scale, still likely contributed heavily to the amount of ash and dust in the atmosphere.
3: Well, think about the Icelandic explosions from, what, five, six years ago? They uh, just shut down... No, t- 2010. It was 2011 yeah, years ago. it was, yeah. it was longer than shut that. Shut down air traffic completely yeah. in the region for weeks.
0: They had to deploy, like, all the navies of Europe to repatriate people. Mm-hmm. Well, and we're, we're getting to that. So that, um... Here's another fun scale. That, that Iceland eruption in 2010... So, on the scale of the Volcanic Explosivity Index, which bases its measurements on how much material is spewed into the air in an eruption, that Icelandic eruption was a 4. Now, this scale is logarithmic by volume, so each level is an increase by a factor of 10. So, when Krakatoa blew in 1883, that was a 6, which means it wasn't 50% bigger than a 4, it was at least 100 times bigger. Krakatoa, in 1883, One level six eruption brought about a poorer than average harvest worldwide the following year. The only level seven eruption in modern recorded history was that of Mount Tambora in 1815, which brought about the year without a summer, as it's known, where snow was recorded in July in New York. Worldwide crop failures ensued and famine may have killed as many as 100,000 people here in the United States. And the Thames River in London froze over for the only time in the modern period. That was because of 1-7. The period of the mid-530s, described by one volcanologist as volcanic eruptions at the same rate as an automatic weapon, contained at least two sixes and three sevens. Comparing that next to that 2010 Icelandic eruption, that's like having a stick of dynamite exploding next to a tactical nuke going off. These are eruptions that are meant to be expected every three to five hundred years, Within the span of a couple years, there were three of them. All of the effects described in the accounts of the time can be explained by the massive amounts of fine matter shot into the atmosphere, which diluted out through the air currents and essentially put up a pair of blackout curtains between the Earth's surface and the Sun. The amount of matter shot into the atmosphere by this series of eruptions is estimated to be enough to completely fill in Lake Erie. Ice core samples, me- ice core sample measurements indicate that the average global temperature dropped as much as 6.3 degrees Fahrenheit in what was a geological instant. In fact, it took so long for all of that matter to leave the atmosphere that temperatures didn't fully return to pre-eruption levels until around 660 AD. Soils and dendrochronology samples show that precipitation rates in some parts of Europe, North America, and Asia would have been as much as seven times the average yearly amount for the first three to five years post-event. Many areas were just swamped, as unending heavy rains can be as bad, if not worse, for crops than a drought. Some areas did actually benefit from this global climate shift, particularly in desert areas that saw increased rainfall and gained significant amounts of arable land and grazing, leading to population growth and increased wealth for the semi-nomadic herders living in areas like the Arabian Peninsula. Now this in particular would help lead to the emergence and proliferation of a third Abrahamic faith that is still quite popular to this day. So what does this mean for Justinian and his plans to reconquer the lost lands of the Roman Empire? Well, his insistence on continually mobilizing new armies and reinforcing the ones he already had in the field, as well as the additional expense of fortifying and garrisoning the territory he had taken, meant that he kept spending more and more money in order to keep up the momentum of these offensives. On top of all this, in some parts of the Empire, as the famine descended, the price of grain shot up to 20 times its previous value. This meant that far fewer supplies could be shipped out to the armies in the field, and an army with strained lines of supply cannot effectively conduct offensive operations, and an enemy that is undersupplied is an enemy that is an army that is also vulnerable to counterattack. Both of these factors led to a halt in the advance of Justinian's forces on all fronts. By the end of the 530s, even though Ostrogoth power had been broken and the war was basically won, the campaign northwards in Italy had petered out, the hungry Byzantine forces unable to overcome the resistance of the fierce Burgundian and Frankish kingdoms of southern France and Switzerland and the extent of byzantine gains would be stopped right about where the italian border is today and would be stagnant for another decade it would then it would take another 20 years for the rest of the ostrogothic strongholds in italy to be reduced and for the country to fall fully under roman control in north africa the byzantine advance westwards to the strait of gibraltar had ground to a halt in what's now algeria due to the supply situation and increased resistance from fierce berber tribes the mediterranean would never again be a Roman lake, and the crown jewels of Hispania and Gaul would never again fall under Roman rule. Some minor gains would continue to be made in later years of Justinian's reign, which we'll talk about later on, but his dream of reconquering an empire that stretched from the Red Sea to the North Sea shriveled as quickly as the empire's crops had done under the ash-darkened skies. With the 540s dawning, Justinian's great uh, ambitions for Renovatio Imperii have been hampered by nature hitting the clap-off switch on the sun and left the empire in a rather rather febrile state due to famine, discontent, and its economic woes. And the last true Roman emperor could have really used a break. Unfortunately, he wasn't going to get one. Everything didn't get better all of a sudden? Uh, You're going to be shocked about this. No, they didn't. It'll just go away. Yeah. It'll go away on its own. (laughs) Only 15 cases of famine. The comeback's (laughs) going to be huge. It's going to be
2: huge. Huge. But yeah, I just, promise you.
0: but Justinian was not gonna get a break and things would go from really bad to way, way fucking worse. And poopier. Yeah. The late antique micro ice age could be could have well have been the demise of the Byzantine Empire. And it nearly was, but it would be dramatically upstaged by yet another massive disaster. In this case it was an invasion. At this time, an invasion shouldn't have been much of a problem for the Byzantines. They'd invested heavily in the defenses of their borders. They had more troops than anyone else could muster, including an army of 40,000 being held in reserve just in case a neighbor made trouble. But this was not assassinated Persian host nor some force of, of steppe horse archers. It came from the plains of Central Asia, somewhere around where Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and northern China sit today. It made its way both east and west and to the south, spreading in all directions. Now, whether it made its way down the last spur of the Silk Road that travels down through the Levant towards North Africa or came from some port or another in the Indian Ocean or Persian Gulf, we don't really know. But this invader first struck the land of the Byzantines in the winter of 540-541, the city of Pelusium, on the eastern edge of the Nile Delta, near where the northern entrance to the Suez Canal now sits.
3: It was the Ever Given, wasn't
0: it? It, Yeah. (laughs) William Rosen, in Justinian's Flea, writes, By the middle of the 6th century, Pelusium was more than a thousand years old, a fortress town built at the mouth of the easternmost branch of the Nile by the Persians on the site of a famous victory over the Egyptians. It appears in the second book of the Old Testament as both the beginning and the end of the Exodus, where God gave the Israelites manna for their hunger, and the last place from which Joshua sent his spies into Canaan. It had been conquered by Julius Caesar, and had watched the escape of Hannibal to Rhodes. The frontier city had seen Pontius Pilate sailing east on his way to Judea, and the Jews going west on their journey into exile. But it had never witnessed anything like the corpses. Now, to be sure, dead bodies were not really a novelty at a time when a man who lived past his 40th year was considered fortunate, and one child in four never celebrated a first birthday. Disease, however mortal, was nothing new in Egypt or anywhere else. But even so, the corpses had a distinctive feature. Grapefruit-sized swellings in the groin and armpits. End quote. Evagrius Scholasticus, writing from Alexandria, 160 miles away, claimed that in one season, the invader had taken the lives of 7 out of every 10 of the city's 15,000 inhabitants. While this is almost clearly an exaggeration, the loss of life was significant enough to have the news of it make its way at speed across the empire. However, by the time news reached anywhere significantly far away, the invader had almost certainly gained a foothold in the Empire's second largest city, the hub of its breadbasket territories, Alexandria itself. And once it struck Alexandria, this invader was not going to be stopped. See, this thing was going to succeed for two main reasons, one which was a constant issue within the Empire, and one that was, at most times, one of its greatest boons. So let's start with the thing that was normally good. Just because the old Western Empire was gone, didn't mean that all aspects of what Rome once had going disappeared. The Roman Empire, both old and new, thrived on trade. And just because it wasn't Romans in charge of a lot of the old territories, didn't mean that the Byzantines lost their demand for the goods contained there. Now keep in mind, the Byzantine Empire, even before Justinian's conquest in the 530s, was huge and filled with hundreds of cities and ports, many with populations measured in the tens or even hundreds of thousands. Countless smaller towns and villages filled the territories, and every single one of these places could see trade goods moving in and out, with the larger ones as terminals for ships or the large caravans laden with everything you can imagine being traded in the world of late antiquity. And these trade networks went far, far beyond the borders of the empire itself. Pottery from Constantinople has been found in England, and English tin was in return essential for bronze making within the empire. Amber from the Baltic and Scandinavia could be found in jewelers' workshops in Corinth, Alexandria, and Antioch. African ivory decorated the palaces and homes of the well-to-do. Fabrics with natural dyes found exclusively in Madagascar and the Seychelles have been unearthed in Turkey and Greece. Spices from Indonesia, turquoise and garnet from Afghanistan, and of course, silk from China made its way down the famed Silk Road, stretching from the shores of the Yellow Sea to its western terminus 5,000 miles away in Constantinople itself. Coins with the face and name of Justinian have been found in Ireland, Scotland, Denmark, India, Mongolia, and as far around the West African coast as Nigeria. Even the Byzantines' classic enemies got in on the game. The Huns and their successors would drive massive herds of horses to sell at Byzantine trading posts on the shores of the Crimean Peninsula. And amidst the on-again, off-again wars against the Persians, a ton of trade occurred at the times and uh, at, at the off times. And likely there was still quite a bit going on during the on times as well. The Mediterranean, the Black Sea, the Red Sea, rivers like the Nile, Danube, and the Rhine, these weren't barriers to trade. They were highways. Evagrius wrote of over 100 ships a day, departing Alexandria for Constantinople alone. One British archaeologist a few years ago estimated that when the weather was good, as many as 50 Byzantine trading ships would have been transiting the Straits of Gibraltar every day into the wider Atlantic. The Mediterranean may not have been a Roman lake, based on who owned the shores, at least not yet, but it certainly was based on who was sailing on it. The only real barriers to these networks were the vastness of the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Now all this trade is how the Empire made its wealth and how it could support its military success, but every single one of these trade routes would allow the invader to access every part of the Empire and all points of contact beyond with unprecedented speed. There is, however, another factor that would allow this invader to so quickly barrel its way through the Byzantine Empire and its neighbors, and that is filth. The Byzantine Empire had a reputation among more casual observers of late antiquity as being this beacon of civilized cleanliness, the inheritor of the bathhouses and plumbing of the Rome of old. In the context of the 6th century, Constantinople and many of the empire's other major cities had the sort of infrastructure that would make your average Frank or Gepid go, Wow. But by our modern standards, life in the Byzantine Empire for the average person would have been disgusting. Let's start with how crowded Constantinople was. The city had, by the time of our story, a population of three quarters of a million people. That's about the same population of Columbus, Ohio, when OSU was on break. Columbus had an area of, has an area of about 219 square miles. The area of Constantinople in the 6th century was six and a half square miles. And that includes the footprint of some massive churches, the Hippodrome, the Imperial Palace, and so forth. So how do you fit all these people in? You build up. While the big swinging Richards of the city had villas and luxurious townhouses, most of the population, if they even had homes, lived in claustrophobic tenements, some as high as nine stories tall. And while that's impressive architecture for the early medieval period, conditions within were generally very crowded and squalid, similar to the tenements of America's big cities at the end of the 19th century. But things generally should be pretty clean, right? Given that Constantinople is famed for its cisterns, underground sewers, and aqueducts. You'd be right, to an extent. The problem was that the city had simply grown too fast after Constantine made it the capital. <clears throat> the Byzantines were good engineers, but they simply just couldn't install the infrastructure fast enough to keep up with the growth. So a lot of people didn't have access to things like bathhouses, fountains, wells, and troughs, and as such couldn't keep their bodies or their clothes clean. Now Constantinople used to have a ton of public baths, by the way, many of which were free to the public, having as many as sixty-six at the time of the Theodosian Wall's constructions in the four thirties. However, by a century later, any guesses? Oh, it has got to be sixty nine, I swear to God sixty. No, it's not sixty nine. Son of of a nice Kyle were one off. They had seven. Ah. (laughs) They had seven. Now this was because of a big pushback by the religious authorities of the city. The same ones who wanted to ban sex altogether because they didn't think it was necessary for human conception, who said that to bathe it all out... Uh, oh, no. What,
1: what What did they think? Uh,
0: well, they were... Con- no, there was a... It was this,
1: It was that damned stork again. Uh, no, there
0: was a school of thought that because uh, mankind had been redeemed through Jesus Christ, who was, con- birth. who was conceived without sin, right. and his mother Mary, who was also conceived without sin, that mankind had been redeemed from the need... To have sex for the purposes of conception.
2: Well, to be fair, by the way, I, I, I'm,
0: I'm going to clarify this. Yeah, as you know,
2: I'm the padre, I, I might be definitely. slightly off about this, but no, yeah. Well, we did. did I'm, I'm only going to point out at that point the 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 virgin conception of Mary mm.
0: was not a doctrine. That's mm. relatively new. That's 19th century. Well, within the Catholic Church, yes, within the Chalcedonian Church, because here's the thing: we talked about this in the last episode. It's a mess of different schools of thought, and this this is not the majority. This is absolutely the minority believing this.
2: I'm just I'm just yeah. pointing that out that, that it, it wasn't a mainstream. Yeah, but there was uh, there according was according to building, that weird
0: called up the street. It's
1: yeah. still bullshit, which yeah. is what the guy said on Christmas Eve Mass. Apparently, to but one they, of my there, friends. there was but there was uh, a most um,
0: shocked father. But there was a uh, yeah, there was a <laughs> branch yeah, really. of the Chalcedonian Church in the sixth century that wanted to outlaw sex altogether. Yeah, they, I, I think... That would have worked out really well, by the way. By
2: the way... Oh, I it, mean, fewer people
1: well, at the time would have technically been a boon. Well,
2: if, hmm. if, if Christ's redemption at 33 AD had happened,
1: um, and we're in
2: the 540s, that's 500 years of being redeemed and still mm. making with the babies. Well, here's the problem, Padre.
0: <laughs> You're trying to apply logic to this. This was not the strong suit for these. guys. It's like you're in Texas. Just yeah. go with it,
1: man. <laughs> okay.
3: So, uh, but our independent yeah. power grid will never fail. <laughs>
0: but uh, see
1: as in Cancun. Yeehaw.
0: <laughs> so he doesn't do <laughs> So you're these not allowed to do a
2: pow 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 with a dad shirt on. No.
0: <laughs> so these same people who wanted to outlaw fucking, uh, they said that to bathe at all outside of prescribed ritual was sinful because the dirt on one's body had been put there by the will of God. No
1: wonder nobody wanted to fuck these people.
0: And You're visibly uh, uh, dirty. Yeah, and 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 to cleanse oneself was to go against God's will. Uh in addition, being in the warm waters of the bathhouses' caldariums makes you real horny. Could serve to excite the senses, yes, and lead to such unspeakable evils as impure thoughts and God help me, even masturbation itself. Oof, disgusting.
1: Not,
2: so, not just that ass, that Clean <laughs> <laughs> so
0: the religious authorities of the city closed all the free bathhouses, and so and uh, along with that went most of the ones that charged. And over the course of a century, the people of Constantinople would have become noticeably dirtier. This so led...
3: remember being clean and horny keeps you healthy.
0: <clears throat> yeah. Well, so this led to a majority of the working and enslaved classes within the city being constantly infested with lice and fleas. And what they did have access to were small open cuts in the pavement, which, admittedly, very nicely appointed with brick and clay lining into which they would pour all of their waste. That's right. Most of the streets of Constantinople, as tight as they were, very closely packed, had a nice little canal of shite running through them. Yeah, they had poop gutters. Yeah. Now, of course, in addition to whatever was being... I mean, it, th- it's
1: well, not that it, it was not uncommon. No, <laughs> like, not and, I, I and mean until it wasn't uncommon a
3: thousand
2: yeah, years
1: it later. Wasn't un- yeah, it I wasn't uncommon. Was yeah, I was a hundred years ago. Yeah,
0: yeah, a hundred years ago, we still had this. We still use outhouses for Christ's <laughs> sake. This is true, but I bring it up because Constantinople has this reputation of oh, they have these cisterns, they have these sewers, they have aqueducts, they have plumbing, mm, sort of for some of the city. I mean, you, but it's not enough.
1: The re- half the reason it's considered the Dark Ages whenever the Roman Empire crumbles at last. Is that it takes about six hundred years for bathroom technology to
0: catch back up? Yep, like that's, that's six hundred. That's how yeah, important it was. was. If anything, it was worse in the later medieval period. Oh yeah, London,
3: yeah. London was real. Well,
1: th- worse. I mean, there was there was other stuff in the world other than London, fellas. Well, <laughs>
0: Canterbury, uh, yeah. Well, I know this. Well, no, Canterbury had a, a spur of the river it's on that it was literally called Shitebrook. Yeah, <laughs> because that was the waterway that you threw your poop into. So, yeah, so in addition to whatever was thrown into these open sewers from the pots and buckets that people were using to go number one and number two into, this is when they weren't just going in the street, went everyone's kitchen waste. On top of all that waste from all, on top of that was all the waste from the crafting and industry in town and the rotten fruit and veg from grocers, brewers' waste, and all the blood, awful skin, and bones from the city's hundreds of butcher shops, fishmongers, and abattoirs. And that damn masturbation. (laughs) Mm. Oh, uh, speaking of animals, in addition to three quarters of a million people, there would have been millions of animals like uh, dogs, cats, pigeons, horses, uh, livestock of all forms, and much like the people, they all have to do what comes natural somewhere as well. Uh, Packs of dogs roam the city streets vying for food with the herds of feral pigs found throughout the capital which was just apparently a feature of big city life everywhere until about the until about the 18th century. Mm-hmm. 17th century London still had packs of feral pigs running through it. Apparently the only thing that allowed them to be slaughtered and and kept slaughtered was the invention of reliable flintlock firearms. I was just
3: going to say thank God they had their AR15s to defend their children from packs of feral pigs. 30 to 50?
0: 30 to 30 to 40 pigs. Yeah. Uh <laughs> it's just pigs and dogs fighting. It's like, uh, it's, it's like one West of the Side things, Story.
1: Ooh, West Swine Story! One, ah, nicely yeah. done. Nicely done. But one of the things that kept these packs of feral pigs now were the other packs of feral dogs. Yeah, As it turns out, uh, you can make puppies faster than you can make piglets.
0: Mm. God,
3: it's going to be a really messed up Pixar film. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so while the city did have public workers whose job it was to keep the shit gutters flowing, there were never enough of them, and uh, the gutters would back up and overflow constantly. Constantinople had never been the wettest place on earth, but when it rains there, it rains. And when that happened, without fail, all of these open sewers would overflow and the dookie floods would begin. Now, they also made a nice home for dead animals at the time, and quite often, dead people. Because even separate from the massive famine that we just talked about, people just died in the streets of the cities all the time. Now, one story that was always guaranteed to leave Byzantine people absolutely apoplectic with laughter was the tale of the local wino who would get falling down drunk, go face first into the open sewer, and drown in people's dumps. Killed every time. They love that, and they love stories of uh, younger wives cuckolding their older husbands. Both of those bits would
1: kill on every These are every the same occasion. people that were, like, publicly stoning
0: actors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a... Yeah, a bit of a disconnect.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's yeah.
0: not and, uncommon.
2: And, and, and actors that were openly offering you HJs.
0: I mean... They got to do something during intermission. Yeah.
1: Well, they didn't wear pants, so I guess it's not OTP-HJs.
0: <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's, a... <laughs> all right. it's over okay. the toga. Okay, No, let's get away from <laughs> this disgusting material and t- get back to talking about shit.
1: Other, other disgusting yeah. material. So,
0: of course, all of the shit had to flow somewhere, so they took it the easy way out. Boom. Right into the Bosphorus. Uh, Now, this had its own fun side effects, too. Because (laughs) constantly... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) This had its own fun side effects, too, because oftentimes smaller ships and boats wouldn't be able to get out of the way of the points where all this crap would collect and would often find themselves having run aground on floating islands of turds and garbage.
2: Okay, now I know... I mean, this shit still happens. I know in, like, in the modern
0: in London, like, it,
2: it I, still happens today. Yeah, I know in the modern maritime fleet, they have a <laughs> they have a classification sh- of sh- ship. I love goes Uncle into, Padres
0: Navy stories. Goes into the north,
2: in, in, into the Arctic, and it breaks open the ice so that other ships can get through. It's called an ice cutter. Yeah. So, are you going to say that that Navy had a turd cutter?
0: <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> Damn it. I I don't know. However, it was I was just one willing,
3: poor bastard with a snorkel and a fucking shovel. I, I am,
0: however, willing to believe that the navy that would eventually put Greek fire onto their ships probably had the ingenuity to make a, a, a poop icebreaker. So it, well and that's the thing. So boop, yeah. Boop. <laughs> welcome <laughs> Welcome aboard the SS Shitanic. So Given all of this, it's no surprise that chroniclers over the century would talk of how it didn't matter whether you approached by sea or by land. You could smell Constantinople hours before you could see it. And now I see why it was decreed by law that the perfume market had to be placed right in front of the Imperial Palace. (laughs) No, it really... No, it, it was. This is a matter of historical fact, and I get it now.
3: It was like unrelated, but that's like when the like in London they had to pass a law again a thousand years later that you had to call out the window three times before you dump your shit bucket.
2: Guardy Lou. To quote the immortal Mel Brooks, "It's good to be the
1: king." It's good to be the king. (laughs) Piss boy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So all of this mess made for a pretty unhealthy environment and a big source of food and water contamination, infections, and God knows what else. More than anything, however, it was a smorgasbord, a paradise for rats. And the rats would carry fleas. And the fleas were the ones carrying this silent, unseen invader into the heart of the Byzantine Empire. And that invader had a name. Yersinia Pestis. We're going to find out a little more about Yersinia Pestis and the devastating effect it would have on the Byzantine Empire in part three of our series on the reign of the Emperor Justinian. Coming to you next time. So yeah, this was the lighthearted one. Yeah, this is the uh, easier half of the two big episodes or the two big events that, uh, that hit the Byzantine Empire in the span of a decade. Um, so it's gonna go from bad to worse. Yeah, and it, it, really and it also goes from bad to worse because
1: it was bad. Yeah, like, it, it would have been very bad had what just happened not happened. Like yeah. it would have been really bad anyway. Yeah. because I mean like the next time the bubonic plague hits, it's really fucking bad yeah well we just discussed. they didn't they didn't just like leave an yeah. ice age where they didn't harvest crops for well two and a half there years.
3: were there, there there actually was a dip
0: off yeah but i mean beforehand. like beforehand but not quite su- to this but level but the sun but didn't go a out year. for four
1: years for a year <laughs> for they got like a, they got like
0: a year's break yeah <laughs> that's not a lot no it isn't i mean at least they got one decent harvest in mm. i suppose yeah ish yeah one. Oh, what do freaking do um Yeah, so... uh, I mean, those grain stores have been built up for, what, at that point, like, probably 35 years? Uh, Well, I mean... Realistically,
1: because that's when the expansion started, and that's when they would have started pulling things
0: in. I mean, they've been running uh, uh, both an agricultural surplus, heavy agricultural Mm -hmm. surplus for the time, and a big cash surplus since the days of... um, since, like, two emperors before. Since about the 470s. It had just been a, a, a nice, a pretty good time to be a Byzantine
2: i mean the closest modern day equivalent i can think of is is, you know the entire the entire government the entire government shuts down everything for a year for an unknown virus and then we all get a vaccine and then it's june and everything opens back up and we're like oh cool and then we're like oh fuck, half the people didn't get vaccinated delta variant Shut
1: back the fuck down.
0: Boy, that would be weird if that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, that will never happen. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So we, we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it's going to be heavy. Um, uh, and, and I don't know. You may be able to tell uh, from the beginning of the episode to the end, we did make a decision en route to split this into two parts. So uh, Justinian is going to be a four-part series. Our first four-part series. Yeah, you know, yeah. like take a
1: break, take your yeah. headphones off smoke a cigarette <laughs> have a drink
0: <laughs> do whatever you need kiss the person you love I mean it's it's no no you're, you're gonna want to avoid
1: yeah. people altogether <laughs> well but no, that's why remember
0: that's what, the same household
2: <laughs> kiss kiss them now make sure you have a shot kiss them now because at the end of this episode yeah at the end
0: of the next one you're not gonna want to touch anybody yeah. sorry, sorry about your sex life and every other aspect of your life so uh, yeah uh, part three next time it's ooh, uh, this one was heavy. A lot of human suffering. It's getting worse. But, uh, yeah, wrapping up on that happy note. <laughs> um, Chris, if people want to find us out there in the world of the internet, where can they do it?
1: If you want to find us on the internet, all you have to do is follow at PodcastTRR on Twitter. You can follow. You can find us on Instagram at TRRPod. Uh, and if you want to drop us a line, if you think you have an answer to whenever my dog bit Rob's genitals... Uh, just drop me a note at trrpod at gmail.com and that is
0: and by the way, that is not a bit. I if you get it right, whoever gets it closest, let me know which of our source books you would like and I will mail it to you.
1: Uh, yeah, d- uh, drop me a note uh, with a subject line Rob's testicles. Uh, To TRR Pod Edge. you're gonna need something
0: more specific to sort the the wheat from the chaff. There,
1: (laughs) it's usually like Mike's testicles because he always talks about you know his his love of pubic hair. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, remember to uh, like, review, subscribe. Uh, We just
3: talked about shit rivers, and that was what made me shudder.
1: So, wherever you find your, uh, wherever you find your podcasts, uh, again, like, review, subscribe, even a couple downloads help, because yep. we all know algorithms are super
0: fun. And also, if you want to take it to the next level, you can uh, support us on Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash trrpod, which uh, helps keep making the show bigger and better. Uh, before we wrap and,
2: up... And, and finally, I would like to say that if you have any ideas or anything like that, you can um, you can email the webmaster at www.bobcranesexcult.com. Oh, that is true, yes. And we will we will be in touch with you.
0: Uh, two things before we wrap up. Um, if you saw the social media, um, the uh, TRR team suffered a loss this week. Uh, my beloved little cat Amelia, our Yule cat. Yeah, the Yule cat uh, made famous in our Christmas you know, episode. Made famous in our Christmas episode. Um, she uh, She left us too early this past week. She was my little shadow. She kept me sanish during the lockdowns. Um, Just uh, to Amelia, the mighty Amelia. We will see you collecting table scraps as we feast in Valhalla. (laughs) I love you, little girl. I'm going to miss you. And also uh, to the great fucking Norm MacDonald.
1: Yeah, shortly before recording this episode, we lost one of the great comedic minds. One of the the all-time, like, acerbic, biting comedians, just... Uncompromising in what he was willing to joke about, and uncompromising in just how goddamn funny that man was. By, By the of, way, did you know that he killed comic, his dirty wife work. and Ron Goldman? <laughs> that, that's that's why he ended up getting fired from Saturday Night Live. He wouldn't stop making jokes about it. And He thought it was even funnier whenever it was O.J.'s friend that was his boss. Creator of
0: <laughs> creator of my all time favorite comedy, Dirty Work. Oh so, uh, you that.
1: think he's got his thumb up that dog's ass?
0: <laughs> Happy trails, Norm. We're gonna miss <laughs> you. We will. So, yeah, everybody, we'll catch you next time for uh, part three of our four part series on Justinian. Oh, boy, brace yourselves. That's all I'm going to say. That's your warning. Good luck, everybody. Hold fast.